This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're catching up with Jenny Bradley and her son, Jack. Jenny, alongside her husband, Craig, and son, Jack, farm their family property, New Armatree, which you might have guessed is just outside of Armatree in the Central West. Jenny and her family operate a successful commercial merino enterprise, joining to board Leicester's, as well as running a winter-based cropping program. But as you'll hear Jenny explain, her heart is with the livestock, and she's not afraid to be the self-proclaimed sheep tragic. In this episode, Jenny shares with us her family's history of farming at New Armatree, which spans more than 70 years, and how it's important to her to have her children returning to the farm to continue the third generation of the family farm business. As Jenny explains, succession is a process they've been working on for many years and is made possible through good communication and a shared vision for the family business. You'll also hear how managing pastures, on-farm biosecurity and focusing on record-keeping and data-driven decision-making in their commercial and seed stock businesses is driving production and is their key to success. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Advisor Rowan Leach sat down with Jenny and Jack on an unusually cold November morning to learn more about the successful business they're building at New Armatry. G'day listeners, today I'm out near Armatry with Jenny Bradley and her son Jack. Guys, welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. Thanks Rowan. Good to be with you Rowan. Guys, would you just mind starting off by telling the listeners who you are and what you do? Farming, <laughs> sheep production and all round sheep tragic. And Jack? I'm Jenny and Craig's son, working here at Armatry on a mixed farming operation. I was a diesel mechanic, just been back home for about 14 months now. And so your husband, Craig, is involved in the operation here? Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's missing in action just at the moment. He's a bit shy, so he's gone outside to do a bit. And he's probably checking some crops with a bit of water over the top of them, oh, is he? Oh, yes, that's exactly Rowan. We've had more than enough. That's it, yeah. It's a bad year for it, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's the 3rd of November. Normally we'd have pulses off, oats, barley, and probably just looking at starting wheat, but we're at least two or three weeks away with no more rain. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. So, Jack, how long have you been back on the farm for? So, I've been back since two Septembers ago. Just finished five years of diesel mechanicing, got my trade and came home and started here. And how are you enjoying it so far? Yeah, I've seen some wet years. (laughs) Yeah, no, really enjoying it. Looking forward to the future. We're really enjoying having him home too. Yeah, it's a nice to be able to have your family involved in your business, I guess. It is. It's great. We're sitting in your lovely house at the moment and you said you've just ticked over 100 years here. So Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, Rowan, not- I'm not 100. <laughs> but um, yeah, 100 years. The house is actually 100 year old last year, 1921 it was built. And my family have been here since 1954, yep. which is coming up. Yeah. Nearly 70 years, yeah. A while, yeah. So we're into our third lot of succession at the moment, yeah, which is good. And how's the succession going? Yeah, I think so. I've got a daughter, um, Peter, 
she's also keen to come back home. We've been planning for a number of years, or 10 years or more, for the succession. We've got to do a lot of planning in succession, family succession. Farms seem to have a very poor outcomes in succession, so hopefully this one will work well. Yeah, and how's it going from your perspective, Jack? Well, it's an inevitable, so it's something we all have to do. It's going to happen. So, yeah, I'm pretty comfortable with where we're sitting at the minute. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's all about communication, I think, Rowan. Yeah, that's it. So, Jack, maybe can you tell me a little bit about the farm and Enterprise Mix, how many hectares you've got here at New Armatory? Yep, sure. So we've got about 1,800 hectares, depending on season, split into thirds. So a third of it's cropping, a third of it's improved pastures, and a third of it's just natural pasture. And so what are some of your natural pastures? Some of our natural pastures, grasses in the summer, very mixed bag of grasses depending on soil type. In the winter, we've got clovers and medics depending on seasons. This year's been pretty good. Summer grass has been a bit of an issue with shading the clovers out. Yeah, that's something we're looking at managing. Now, improved pastures are lucerne, bicerula, cerradella, and also the lucerne that we sow has got a mix of medics and clovers in it, which are spineless burr medic, balancer clover, and snail medic, which really suits some of the wetter paddocks that we sow the lucerne in, gives us a bit of an option. Balanza, actually, I've seen it growing in about five inches of water for most of the year. It's actually got this really interesting little thing about that it can get air from its roots for some sort of mechanism in it that it can built to basically thrive in those waterlogged soils. As I was driving through it the other day with 50 mil of water covering it or underneath, I was wondering how it was actually surviving in yeah. it. Yeah. It's certainly a better option than having yeah, big dead patches in it. It's done, it's thrived this year. given the wet conditions that's it and jenny maybe just about your enterprises so with it we're all sheep we did have a few cattle here 15 years ago they'd been on more holidays than what i'd been on during Mm. the droughts (laughs) so we made the decision to we reduced the number of enterprises livestock enterprises we had so we sold the cattle we actually might have been 15 or 20 years ago then went on to land plan with our seed stock enterprise and then increased the numbers there and maintained our commercial U base, which is just a bought-in coal merino U's, running about 1,500 of them. At the moment, we only source them from two clients, repeat suppliers to us. That's a biosecurity insurance for us, but it also they're non-mule, so we're on responsible wool standards, RWS, so that helps in that supply chain with the wool as well. That biosecurity thing is definitely one that's gaining importance, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. With the major disease and possibility of incursions from FMD and lumpy skin disease. And also your OJD is another one too that we haven't got and we don't want. You've got your commercial merinos. You've been running them for a long, long time. How long have you been running the border side, the border Leicesters for? Yeah, well, Rowan, you asked me this question and I said, Oh, it hasn't actually changed since my father had the, the <laughs> business, and it hasn't. We run, he ran the commercial merinos, and he's always had borderlesters. And I suppose over time we've adapted and adopted and progressed all the, both those enterprises to ex- try and extract the most from them. So and there's no freeloaders here in this place. So the merino enterprise, we run them, and I suppose the biggest change there would be scanning, sheep scanning. We, need, we were early adopters of sheep scanning. And then for scanners to be able to identify singles, twins, triplets, and then for us to be able to differentiate on those to keep us, that's one of the reasons why we do it as well. Yeah. For shelter. 
it started off as just one flock and breeding her and I think Dad used to breed his own rams and then people used to buy them from him. But we've taken that to and improved that. So now we're on sheep genetics to performance recorded border esters, seed stock, and we do a lot of genetic selection as well as phenotypic selection as well. And the land plan, originally we got on that to drive the first cross year production, the commercial side of it. Of our business. Mm, that's correct, yeah. You said that you've done some lifetime ewe management and some of those principles have really held you in good stead. Yes, things like condition scoring. How intensive is that to the operation? Well, I'm about halfway through my course, or not quite, and just the things that have been explained just by condition scoring and the differences that it can make are huge by using one simple tool. So there's four key times during the year where we condition score, which is pre-joining, well before joining, so you've got time to actually react to that, depending on what the condition score is. Pre-lambing, so important for lamb survivability. Then you've got weaning to make sure your ewes are going to be prepared for joining. And then we implement other things like flushing, pre-joining. And we have used teasers before and we'll, as I said, mentioned to you before, we're actually going to get some rams, vasectomous size. I can't even say that. <laughs> get that's however you say it. Vasectomous yeah. size. I'm, I'm no vet, Jenny, so I'm not going to pull you up. But that's, yeah, that yeah. sounds right to me, I reckon. Yeah, so, um, so that we've actually got them all the time and they'll be used across both the commercial merino ewes and the seed stock enterprise as well for joining young ewe lambs. Yeah, and you use those condition scoring and basically the same management systems for your borders and for your merinos? To a certain point. The merinos are a bit harder to get into condition. The borders just seem to be able to get back up there and just eat. Just <laughs> eat. But I suppose that's a good question because with the border lesters, we go as another step because we're adult size of sheep is getting too big. So for the last five years, we've been capping adult weight. So to cap adult weight, two weeks prior to joining those ewes, we do a weight and a condition score. So we can select those ewes that aren't too high a weight but also carry a good condition score. So they can be 75 kilos and four and a half condition score versus an animal that may be 95 kilos but only two and a half condition score. And I know which one we'll select on. Yep. Selecting for that more moderate animal. Moderate animal size. Going forward, that's going to have a bigger and bigger impact. Like shearers are hard enough to get now. They're not going to want to come and shear. 100 kilo ewes that will throw them around. And even looking a bit further forward than that, your carbon, they'll start to look at carbon footprints within sheep and things like that. So if we can sort of cap it and just more productive sheep, like the bigger ewes that will produce more carbon but aren't the condition scores, so they're not going to get in lamb. It's just going to be more efficient if we have, yeah, capped adult body weight but still have that ability to get themselves back into condition, back in lamb and just keep the cycle going. And it's probably more really important that we transfer that over to the commercials. Half of the commercials are weather lambs. They have to be turned off. So growth is important. So they have to grow early, turned off early, and have carcass attributes such as muscle and fat going over the hook. And then your ewe lambs that you sell, we've got a repeat buyer for ewe lambs, our first crush ewe lambs, and they're joined at seven months of age. So they have to be able to join up because he doesn't tolerate dries either. So with lambing percentages that he's chasing, that's a really important relationship we have too with that repeat buyer. He drives our breeding objectives. They have feedback into what rams we select and retain. That drives our seed stock business, is that commercial reality of what's happening. 
So getting those moderate framed animals, you're getting those target weights earlier. You're not having this big bulky animal that's hasn't got any fat cover. You've got, yeah, just an animal that's more suited to your markets. Yeah, more production. It's more production orientated. And production per hectare, not production per animal. Correct. And exactly what Jack mentioned, yeah, methane production will become a major issue. Whether we like it or not, it will probably happen. Jack, you mentioned just before that the merinos are harder to put condition back on as opposed to your borders. It's interesting to me that here in the in Armatree where, yeah, you've got some native pastures, some probably pastures that aren't the best quality at certain times of year. How do the borders perform out in this Western environment? The borders, they seem to perform quite well. Where I'm coming from, that typically your first cross operations and those things get to a bit of a rainfall line and are we still within that line here? Yeah, I think we are. In a good year, we get good summer rainfall and our pastures that we grow, like Lucerne especially, is it thrives in summertime if we have that rain. And I'd like to think that our genetics help us to have sheep that can thrive here. And you're right. I mean, the borders never get to see Lucerne. We run them in single lines, so we don't give them, we don't segregate them too much until lambing time. But they run quite harshly, just given natural pastures. But that selection for those carcass attributes, which are commercially driven, muscle fat and limiting adult weight and pushing growth, we've actually had to, the last four years, we've had to, at weaning time, vaccinate the ewe portion, the adult ewes, for six in one. We turn them off and they recover really quickly and then all of a sudden you'll have one dead and you go, I bet you that's pulpy kidney. And it happens to that moderate frame ewe that's well-conditioned so now they recover quickly and they seem to hold their condition score a lot easier. So they're easier to manage, easier to feed. So getting into that seed stock side of the business, so how many rams are you producing? And We produce rams for ourselves. <laughs> so our battery of rams is about 50 rams in our ram team. The whole business is to produce rams for ourselves and that's sort of grown from there. Our ram team can vary from 200 to 300 rams annually. The only rams that are offered on our on-property ram sale are the elite of those. They go into our catalogue. And so how many ewes are you running to get those sort of numbers? There's about three. It varies. And it varies on the young ewes that we join as well. We try to retain about 160 ewe lambs a year. And then we join about 320. 320, 350 border ewes. What are you doing with your culls? The cull ewe lambs, we just hook them, leftover weather lambs. We did have processor resistance when I first requested that they go with the lambs, but now he just takes it. They hang up as well as first cross, those ewe lambs. So with your target market of border buyers, who are you targeting? Are they rams going for crossbreeding or people that are maybe breeding their own rams? Yeah, it's interesting. We actually don't target our clients, our clients. That whole ram breeding business is set up for our own commercial enterprise. And I think it's really humbling when people align with your breeding objectives. They just yeah, align and come to our sale. But we don't breed stud rams. We don't we're int- not, yeah, we're not intentionally breeding stud rams or show rams for that matter. We don't show anymore. And- no, it's all commercially driven. So it is really satisfying and pleasing to see so many people trust what we're doing and think, <laughs> and think we've got it right. We don't even know whether we've got it right, but it's a nice surprise when um, the feedback we get, yeah, which is good. I think the numbers maybe support if you've got it right or wrong and you're a big one for measuring. Probably if you're targeting your rams for your own commercial operation, really stud buyers should be breeding the same because first cross use, it's the same market for everyone really. And as a result, the, the flow on that those breeders should be 
breeding animals for their own commercial buyers. As Mum probably pointed out, the feedback from our first cross ewe buyer also drives that a lot. And we do get feedback from people who have purchased first cross ewes that have come back from our breeding uh, nucleus. Yeah, that's a good feedback. So why borders with you guys? Why <laughs> borders and not one of the other meat breeds, Suffolk or? You told me it was no hard questions today. <laughs> I don't know. We just seem to have fallen in. We had a good seed stock base to start with, which my father had probably spent a bit of money in putting it into it. But there was so much room for improvement. I mean, I look at any breed and probably the breed at the moment that I admire the most, there's two actually. One is goats because I think <laughs> they've, got, they've got so much to gain from farming and genetics and implementation. So I'm pretty stoked with, excited about how the goat industry is going to move ahead. But also about the merinos because their uptake on genetics has been great. It's a flow-through benefit. We benefit also from buying in those culls that have been genetically performance tested. And they're putting more carcass onto their animals, but also maintaining that wool. Yeah, I think it's an exciting space. The merino guys are moving and kicking lots of goals and making, yeah, it's it's working. They've transformed the merino in 50 years, haven't they? Like the, yeah, the totally animal that... different to what they used to be, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. They have. Have yeah. you spent any time on a handpiece, Jack? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> and going for a non-mules animal, yeah, how does that influence on the shearing and crutching ability of them? It's interesting, yeah. From what the shearers say, they, they don't complain about it too much because the ewes that we buy in as culls are generally that bigger frame, planer, you so they're not overly wrinkly we don't buy them for wool cut no it's just a bonus we can get if we can get it we buy them in here to have lambs that's their job here not to cut wool it's interesting probably the more feedback would be on the tail lengths because we go for a longer tail length and the shearers always say oh these tails i go (laughs) it's okay (laughs) it's better for the sheep yeah but it takes a lot to finish off a sheep but the animal welfare for the animal is that tail length is important yeah it's really important to get a two or three joint. It help, also helps keep the flies away. It's interesting that you've got admiration for the merino industry. We're probably in a time that people are maybe moving away a little bit from merinos, probably due to labour or whatever. Sheep in general yep. are a bit on the nose. It's a combined amount of factors. Like you've got shearing, hard to get shearers, hard to get labour. You've got worm resistance, flies. Everything's happening at the minute. <laughs> it is. And it's, yeah... It's just too wet in a lot of places for sheep. And then I think, yeah, just the intensity of them at the minute's a bit, yeah, putting them on the back burner a bit, but I'm sure they'll fire again. We're a red meat hungry world and we've got such a good reputation. So the mutton and lamb side is still positive, really positive. So the implications for your business in the short term, probably not too much that you'll change. No, we'll maintain our numbers. We'll probably go um, harder on those colliers that we don't want. You know, when you look at the industry on a whole, that's a great time for sheep producers to tighten up and get rid of those sheep that are non-performing and just dry culls, ones that don't cut enough wool. Moving ahead, I think it's exciting. It's still exciting. The Merino guys, as I said, doing lots of really positive things. And on the maternal side, there's so much improvement we can make in within the maternals as well to drive that first cross enterprise. Have you got any advice for people out there on breeding borders? Maybe for someone thinking of breeding their own rams for their own use? You have to set a breeding objective and really adhere to it. So you're breeding a sheep that suits either your demands or your client's demands and yet really sticking to that. 
making sure that your breeding objectives are set, but with all aspects of that in mind, including the meat side at the other end too. So we only sell our weathers over the hook because we want those specifications back, the little specifications that we get. But that's an exciting game to be in at the moment with IMF being measured, shear force being measured, Dexter implemented, EID about to roll out. So for a breeder to align with those marketing tools that, or feedback that we're going to get is also exciting to move forward. It'll be come back to more money in your pocket if you can hit those on Gundagai grid, yeah. for instance, which is really relevant and timely at the moment. So, yeah, set your breeding objectives, set your clients' breeding objectives, what they well, don't set theirs, set your breeding objectives and then market your product on that. I'm not sure whether we covered it, but what are your breeding objectives then? Oh, what do they say? They're smart breeding objectives. Yes, smart goals are specific, measurable, attainable, Attainable, relevant relevant to your own business. And time-bound. And time-bound, yeah. So we review those every three years within our seed stock business, yes. And basically, confirmation is high standard. We maintain a high standard of confirmation. And then those breeding objectives follow on from all the traits that we measure. So we actually set a target. And then we select for that target. So we actually got that. And it's all up on our, it's quite transparent. Everyone can see it. Everyone knows it. Yeah, good. Thanks for listening to part one of this two-part chat with Jenny and Jack Bradley. Join us next episode as we continue our conversation about the importance of using EID and new technologies to boost measurement of individual animal performance data and how this is the key driver for production gains on-farm and growing the future of our red meat industry. This episode was produced as part of Central West Local Land Services' ADAPT project through funding from the Australian Government's National Land Care Program. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.